Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can be seated. That prayer I just prayed, many of you probably know it. It's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Probably could really be rephrased as the Disciples' Prayer. Um, I'd say that the Lord's Prayer, an argument could be made that the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. But that's how we know it. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, whether you grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church or really have much of a background in Christianity at all, the odds are you've heard that prayer or a portion of that prayer and may even know aspects of it. Uh, when I was in college at Georgia Tech, like, we had a you know, cross-country meet or a track meet and the relay was about to go off. We would often huddle together and pray uh, that, that prayer. And there, I mean, there were avowed like, atheist agnostics on the team that you know, didn't, didn't care, but they knew the prayer. They would pray the prayer and just you know, go through it real quick. So everybody kind of knows that prayer. And it's that prayer that we have in the text before us this morning from Matthew chapter 6. It's actually recorded in Scripture twice. You've got it here in Matthew chapter 6. You also have it in Luke chapter 11. And then there's a couple of tiny little differences. Matthew's is a little bit longer. And the reason for that is like just as, you know, at 12 o'clock here in a little bit when I watch the Titans play the Steelers and as uh, someone else watches the Titans play the Steelers, if we give you a recap of the game tomorrow, we're going to tell you the main, you know, basic like plot you know we're going to tell you about the Derrick Henry stiff arm that he's going to have again we're going to remember all of these big things but there'll be a couple of discrepancies that we'll probably give just because you know how I remember certain things stood out to me and how you know someone else stood out to them that's the basic difference in Matthew and Luke how they you know heard or were told a little bit differently how they heard it But then in both of those, like the end, when I prayed just a minute ago, at the end I said, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that is not in Matthew or in Luke. That's actually a line from the book of Chronicles that just in the history of the church, I mean, it's true, it's good, it's wonderful, it's great. But just in the history of the church, they added that at the end just as part of their worship. And over time, it's just become kind of part of the tradition that we pray and recite at the end. We add, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, which is obviously true, but it's not what's in the text uh, this morning that we're going to be kind of walking through. But the big point with the Lord's Prayer, you know, when when we say it, it is wonderful to pray, it is wonderful to memorize, to recite. We do that in here sometimes. But if that's all we do with it, we're being a bit reductionist with it because that's not how Christ intended it. He's teaching us how to pray. And then, so in a lot of ways, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer is really like a divine outline. That's what it is. It's not so much a, hey, repeat after me, say these exact things. But here's a basic kind of outline for how you should pray. When you pray, pray like this, Jesus says. And so some of you may have come across in your time uh, an acrostic act, A-C-T-S. And that helps kind of guide how you pray. 
adoration, confession, uh, thanksgiving, supplication. Before COVID hit and we had everybody together at one time, and we, before we changed a little bit of our order of service, and I primarily did all the pastoral prayers, that's a lot of times how I would, I would pray. I'd start with adoring God for a specific attribute and move into thanksgiving about things, or actually that's misspelling it, move into confession about things uh, corporately, move into thanksgiving, and then move into asking God to you know, do things in uh, the life of our church. This is kind of Jesus's acts, right? This is his kind of outline of how he is encouraging us to pray. And it's got two major sections as you look at it. You see them pretty quickly. The first couple verses, you see so many things that like your, your, your. And so it's very much God-focused. And in the second half, you see a lot of words, our, 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 us. And so it's more personally focused. And so the two big major sections of the Lord's Prayer, and I'll just go ahead and give them to you in your notes, is it starts vertically, okay? It starts vertically. So number one, if you want to take notes, you can write in start vertically. And then number two, continue personally, okay? This is just the divine outline. Jesus is saying, hey, when you pray, start vertically and then continue personally. But then within those two major subsections, there's all kinds of different things he gives us to pray about. And so we're just going to kind of make our way through this this morning, learning to pray. And when you pray, pray like this. And so again, number one, start vertically, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> and so we start focused on God and, and his kingdom and his will. But it is that very first line that I really want to camp out on for a little while because it is that first line that totally totally reshapes the way we pray and truthfully reshapes our entire lives once we understand the truth of it. And it's that line, our Father in heaven. And so just to fill in, you know, letter A, we, that's who we pray to. Pray to our, and that's corporate, it's not just mine, it's corporate, pray to our heavenly Father. That's letter A. Pray to our heavenly Father. And it's that last part that is absolutely crazy. Heavenly Father. I mean, when we meet someone famous or powerful or who holds a high position, we find it really difficult to call them, you know, by anything outside of like a very high title, right? So I'll give you an example. Uh... When back when I was at Tech, like decades ago, and we had to go get treatment for something, one of the things that they did a lot of times is we, is we go cold tub, hot tub, cold tub, hot tub. And I mean, cold was like cold, like really cold. Uh, you know, Smoky Mountain River cold. Not fun to get in. Then you got in the hot tub. That was a lot more fun to get in. But then you had to go back, and that was terrible. But yeah, you know, and I'd been in the cold this particular day. I was just kind of out of it. I wasn't really focused on because there were always all different athletes in there all the time. But I was just kind of zoned out, not really talking to anybody, just in my own little head at the time. And I'd already been in the cold tub, and then I go and plop down in the hot tub. And I've, I know someone's over there, just peripheral vision. Someone's over there. And so I get down, and, and I look up to you know, say hey or whatever, and I realize it's not actually a Georgia Tech athlete who's, who's over there. It's... Former President Jimmy Carter. 
And so, oh, you know, and, 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 and so Jimmy Carr and I shared a hot tub. Yes, we did. <laughs> but the, the thing about it is like my mom and daddy raised me right, so I knew better than to call him Jimmy, right? And, I mean, he's my elder, so bare minimum I'm going to call him Mr. Carter. But I also just inherently knew I can't call him Mr. This is the former president. So I need to call him President Carter, right? I couldn't just address him as anything else. Because people who have high positions, like whether or not you like a president or dislike a president, we don't call them by their first name. It's not Donald or Brock or, or George or Bill. We call them Mr. President. They have a position. We, we find it even hard to call them anything else because they have a title. They have a position of authority and should be respected as such. And so if titles are proper for people, maybe 80 years of life at best, how much more so is a title and the respect that is due to be shown to the Creator God, the King of heaven and earth, sovereign over every molecule, powerful over all things, in control of all things, created it all, down to like electrons. I mean, he made, he's in control of all of these things. So how much more should we have a title and, and, and that's lofty for him? And that's what makes this first line in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer so crazy because Jesus invites us to call him Father, to call God Father. And it's that understanding that totally shapes how we pray. And really totally shapes how we live. Matter of fact, theologian J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers... And his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It is huge. And so friends, if you are in Christ, you, listen, you've been born again. You've been adopted into the family of God and your Father loves you. Like that is the thing I want to stress this morning. God is not in the sky just tolerating you. If you are in Christ, He has adopted you and He loves you. Loves you. I mean, I've got four daughters on the front row down here. I love them with all my heart and I would do anything for them. Anything. And I'm a sinner, right? Many of you have kids, you may feel, you should feel the same way. You do anything for the benefit of your kid, anything in the world. And you're a sinner. And so if you as a sinner, if I as a sinner can feel that way about my own kids, then multiply that feeling times infinity and perfection. And you're getting into the realm of how the Father loves you. loves you. I think if we could understand the fatherhood of God towards us, it truly would revolutionize us. 
He is your father, people. He's not a dictator. He's not a tyrant. He's not a boss. He's not a grader up in the sky keeping tabs. He's a dad. A perfect one. Like you may have a jacked up one on earth. A perfect dad. And this is why prayer actually becomes rather simple. Because you're talking to your dad. You're talking to your father who loves you. This is why sinners like us can approach God with confidence because we're talking to our Father who adores us. Not because like we're awesome, but because He is and He just He loves us. And that's why it will revolutionize our, our prayer because, I mean, honestly, the way we sometimes approach God, like we're sometimes reluctant to pray because we feel unworthy. We feel dirty. I can't pray right now. Which is probably when we need to pray more than any other time. But we feel that way. We feel unworthy. And God's presence kind of frightens us because we've sinned. Like, again. We promised Him we wouldn't do it, but we did it again. And then we promised Him we wouldn't do it, and then we did it again. And we feel unworthy to come into His presence. And so we project our impatience onto God... And that kind of locks us up at the thought of asking for forgiveness for a sin we struggle with and have asked for forgiveness a thousand times before and have asked, God, give me strength, give me... And and then we fall. And How can I come back to God again and ask Him for... I mean, He's got to be done with me. He's got to be tired of me. How can He continue to put up with me and my mess? Friends, remember the gospel, first of all. That Jesus came into this world to save his people from their sin. I mean, hear the good news. Jesus did not come to just tell people to stop sinning. The prophets had that down. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save us and then the father adopts us into his family and loves us as our father and when we understand that when we get that that god is our father perfect heavenly that's when the fear of coming to him begins to evaporate he's not a greater in the sky he's dad I mean, think about, like, how do parents treat their own children when they come confessing to them their weaknesses? Are we shocked? Do we banish our children? Do we say, hey, come here so I can punish you and then disown you and never have anything to do with you? Lord willing, no. Of course that's not what we do. I mean, even sinful, like if, if sinful parents, me and you, know how to comfort and forgive our children when they come to them, how much more will God the Father treat us with mercy and grace in the midst of our struggles? 
And so if you've ever wondered, can God forgive me again? Can God forgive me when I fail Him as a Christian? Absolutely He can. His love is unconditional. Sometimes we we say, yeah, unconditional love, but really it kind of has some conditions on it. No. No, it doesn't. That's why it's crazy. It's a love that exceeds all human love. Now, don't think I'm downplaying sin here or God's downplaying sin. The Father grieves over our sin, like any parent does when they see their child sin. But if the gospel says, no, let me rephrase that. Since the gospel says that God loved us while we were yet enemies, how much more is He going to love us since we are now sons and daughters. This is good news. You have a father if you are in Christ. This isn't true if you're not in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have a father who loves you, loves you, adores you, apple of the eye. You are in his eyes. And when you remember that, like when you pray, remember You're talking to your father. Yeah, he deserves all accolades, but you're talking to your father. And so pray, letter A, to your father who is in heaven, letter B. So that's who we pray to, letter B. is kind of like the first prayer request Jesus gives us. And so letter B, pray for his name to be hallowed. Pray for his name to be hallowed. What this is talking about is like declared holy. Like above all things, God, no matter what happens above everything, I am praying that your name would be revered, that you would be glorified, your name which represents your character, your essence, that it would be revered, that you would be praised, your reputation, your character, that you would be honored and reverenced and worshipped and glorified and exalted and esteemed and savored, treasured. Like work in my life and in the life of my family and the life of my church and the life of my friends and the life of this world to see your name praised and glorified. John Piper put it like this, nothing is more clear and unshakable to me than that the purpose of the universe is for the hallowing of God's name. His kingdom comes for that. His will is done for that. Humans have bread sustained life for that. Sins are forgiven for that. Temptation is escaped for that. And so when you pray, friends, first of all, pray for that. That his name would be hallowed. And therefore, then, letter C, pray for his kingdom to come. Pray for his kingdom to come. This is just a divine outline that Jesus is giving us. This is the longing of our heart that Christ's kingdom would come because this world isn't our home. We are homeless here. We are sojourners and aliens and exiles in a place that is not home. So we're homeless for a home that we've never been before. We're longing for that day to come. We're longing for the day that the world as we know it ceases to exist and the kingdom of God is unveiled with the second coming of Christ. The return of Christ. And there will be a kingdom where, as one guy put it, there will be justice and love and mercy. The hungry will be fed. We won't have to have a food pantry, right? 
The hungry will be fed, the poor will be provided for, the marginalized will now be esteemed. Those who have wept, every tear will be wiped away from their eyes and every unrepentant bully and thug and dictator and abuser will be cast out of that kingdom forever. And we will all together as the children of God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, from all time, all geographic locations, enjoy our Father in His perfect eternal kingdom forever. That's what we long for. And so we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, we're to live as the church seeking to make, as John Calvin put it, the invisible kingdom visible. We're to work in this day to bring at least a foretaste of that coming kingdom to bring it into this world by fighting injustice and feeding the poor and caring for the marginalized and loving those who hate us, forgiving those who do evil against us and seeking to be sought and liked and helping others become part of this kingdom by sharing the gospel message with them, the mercy and love and forgiveness of Jesus through His life, His death, His resurrection in our place for our sins as our substitute. And that's what letter D is all about. Letter D, pray for His will to be done. Like that's His will. That we would do those things, that we would live that way. But here's the deal, we're, we're not only just to pray for it, we're also to do it. We don't just pray for it and just sit back, like there's action that we're to take. And so like all that Jesus has spoken thus far, like all through the Beatitudes, be a peacemaker, be a merciful person, be pure in heart, Hunger and thirst for righteousness. All of these things, like we are to pursue these things. Like that's his will for us. He meant, like, hey, really live that way. And Jesus' own life is the best commentary on this. It's the best illustration I could give you on this. Like you think about Jesus' own life, like how he lived, how he loved, how he interacted, how he forgave. But then also, when it was really hard, think about, think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? He... He's there, he's, he's praying, he's sweating drops of blood. He knows that tomorrow, for the first and only time in all of eternity, he's going to be forsaken by the Father. All of the sin of those who would be his followers will be put on him, and he will suffer and die in their place for their sins, bearing the eternal wrath of God against sin. And he's in that moment, and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. if you know the story, what does he say next? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's the example for us. Like, it's not going to always be easy. And it's not always going to be safe. Sometimes it's going to be really, really hard. Sometimes it's going to be painful. Sometimes it's going to be dangerous. Praying for God's will to be done is, is a dangerous prayer. But it is a good prayer and a right prayer. It is, as Romans puts it, good and pleasing and perfect. 
And as Paul Tripp points out, it's the only antidote for sin. He writes, since sin starts with the heart, it is only when my heart desires God's will more than it does my will that I'll live within the moral gospel boundaries that God has set for me. And it's only God's grace that can produce this kind of heart. A heart that's been delivered by the Redeemer from the kingdom that always, always, always leads to destruction and death. What kingdom is that? It's the kingdom of self. Little kingdoms, little we set up in our own life, put ourselves as, as a king, always lead to death and destruction. I mean, no one's done more in damage in your life than you have. No one's robbed you of more joy than you have. And yet we constantly think, I know better than God on how to direct my life for joy. And so for the glory of God and the ultimate good of our souls and hearts, Maybe not momentarily, surely. But for the ultimate good, we pray, Father, put us at your disposal. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That's how we start. We start vertically. And so just practically, like this should probably reshape a lot of our prayer lives. A lot of times we pray, you know, Dear God, thank you for this day. Right? Thank you for this day. Thank you for this weather. And there's no, no problem with that. I mean, it's good to thank God for everything. He's a giver of... Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. James chapter 1. But that's how we generally pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And now give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Right? We don't start vertically. Now, there's a place for give me, give me, give me, give me. We're about to get into it. Continue personally. But we start vertically. So it should reshape our prayers a little bit. As you pray, remember, divine outline, start vertically. Pray to our Father. His name would be hallowed. His kingdom would come. His will would be done. But then, yes, absolutely continue personally. Right? Number two in your notes. And so, like, while it's true we need to learn to pray vertically, that doesn't mean we, like, stop praying horizontally. It doesn't mean we stop praying personally. I'm not calling for a reallocation of time here, but an increase. Just add in praying vertically. And then still pray horizontally. Pray personally. I mean, the Father is... Jesus is telling us to do this. The Father loves it when we come to Him with our, and pour out our heart and our concerns and our needs. I, I do not snap... I do snap at my children sometimes, but I do not snap when they bring the pickle jar and say, Daddy, I can't open this. Can you open that? I'm glad to open it and do something for, you know, I mean, pridefully, it's like, man, I'm strong, you're not. But, you know, or I'll give it to my wife so she can open it. But I love to do something kind for them that they can't do and I can do. And that's your father. He loves to do things for his kids. And so we come to him with things. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, yeah, start vertically, but then absolutely we should continue on personally. And he gives us three specific things. And the first one's there in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. And so letter A, pray for your daily bread, all right? But I'm going to rephrase it. Pray for your daily needs. Pray for your daily 
needs. And notice it's not really, it needs to say our. Pray for our daily needs. Because it doesn't say your. Again, it's corporate. And so we should 100% be praying for people around us. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, people that you know that do not yet know Jesus, the world, our country, Nolensville. We should pray for all of these things. But also pray for yourself. I think sometimes we, we have been taught uh, stoicism, and so we bring that stoicism into Christianity where it, it, there's no stoicism in Christianity, and it's that I can't really pray for myself, but I can pray for everybody else. But that would be to disobey Jesus. Jesus calls us to pray for ourselves and everybody else. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And specifically here, Jesus is calling us to pray. I mean, right here, he's talking about bread. He's talking about food. And so this probably doesn't hit us as hard being a first world country as it does, you know, the people who were the original hearers of this sermon as well as our brothers and sisters in third world countries where they don't know where their food's coming from. Like in the U.S., we don't worry so much about food. Like we worry more about like obesity than we do food because we have so much. And so that's why, I mean, we want to partner for those who don't have enough food in the food pantry and as well as around the world combating poverty and international levels. We talked about that last week. But while it may not be literal food that we need, we still do have daily needs. And the point is that our Father who loves us is concerned with those and says, ask me, I'm here, I will help you. I'm for you. But it truly is our daily needs, not our daily greeds. Right? We pray for our needs. We don't pray for like every desire that we have. Lord, I want a Bentley, right? We don't pray that. I, I don't want a Bentley. If I was going to get something, it'd be... <laughs> we don't pray for those things. But that doesn't, I mean, once again, just as we talked about, you know, the kingdom come, there's things we need to do. Just because we pray about it doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. Well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for God to, you know, give me my daily needs. And I'm going to sit back and do nothing. And, you know, if it doesn't happen, well, Lord, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Where's my daily needs? No, no, no. When we read scripture, whenever you read scripture, you read, you know, context. The, chap, the paragraph, the chapter, the book, the testament, the Bible as a whole. And so you never just pigeonhole one thing, pluck it up, and disconnect it from everything else. The Bible also says, like, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so there is a working that we need to do. So we ask and we act. We pray and we labor. It's like Spurgeon said, God sends every bird his food, but he doesn't throw it into the nest. And so ask and act. Pray for your daily needs. Your Heavenly Father loves you and is listening and will take care of you. Let her be then. <clears throat> pray for our daily forgiveness. So we pray for our daily bread and daily needs. We also are to pray for our daily forgiveness. So look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts. By debts, he means sin. We have a sin debt we owe to the Father. Jesus has paid it for us. His life, his death, his resurrection in our place for our sins. 
stamped, paid in full, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so what Jesus is specifically telling us here is, like, as we pray, to pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins. In other words, Jesus is telling us that His holiness is such, and our depravity, though made new in Christ, is still, there's still such a discrepancy that we are going to need to ask for His forgiveness every single day. If He says, when you pray, pray like this, and every single time it includes, forgive me of my sins. And so somebody's like, but Joe, I thought we were forgiven at the moment of salvation. You are. You absolutely are. Our justification before God cannot be obliterated by our sin, but nevertheless, things are not right between us and our Father until we come to Him and say, I'm sorry, Dad. I blew it again. See, the difference between Christianity and religion is this. Religion says... Oh no, I've messed up. My dad's going to kill me. And Christianity says, Oh no, I've messed up. I better go talk to my dad. And so listen, there is a capital R repentance that happens at the moment of salvation. You repent. It is a great big turning from sin, from my idols, from my functional God replacement functional saviors and it's turning to god there's a moment in time where that happens capital r repentance okay but then every single day for the rest of our lives there's lowercase r repentance where we're constantly having to drag ourselves to oh yeah in this way i did i've turned back to an idol i've turned i need to turn from that sin and turn back to god i need to turn from this sin and turn back to god i need to turn from this sin which i tried to turn from yesterday and it's a constant repenting martin luther says all of life is repentance so there's a capital r moment when that happens but then it's continual for the rest of our lives and so then jesus gives this qualifier that makes us ask some questions there at the end of verse 12 when he says as we have also forgiven our debtors and he doubles down on it in verses 14 and 15 at the end of the prayer where he says for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses and so this makes us ask the question, like, is, is Jesus saying it's conditional? Is Jesus saying it's works-based? Like, you do this, you get this? Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a formula you put in? Again, context. Not at all, he's not. The whole rest of the Bible talks about how we are justified by faith alone. We're not justified by works. We don't get forgiveness by giving forgiveness. Rather, it's the flip. John Stott puts it really well, so I'll read it, the the flip I was describing, how he puts it. Our Lord certainly does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only the repentant. 
and that one of the chief evidences of repentance is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. It is the disparity between the size of these debts, which is the main point of the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you remember that parable, you've got the unmerciful servant who's been forgiven of an insurmountable, unpayable debt. He's been forgiven of it, but then he refuses to give his fellow servant to forgive him of just a tiny little debt. And the, the conclusion of that, the point is, the master saying to the servant, I forgave you all that debt which was huge. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, there's, I mean, there, there, the call for us to be forgiving because we've been forgiven is huge. And there's a ton more to say like on what forgiveness is and what it's not. I mean, forgiveness doesn't mean that justice isn't also served. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't still call the cops. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't... It doesn't mean that like consequences go away. But it's like Puritan Thomas Watson said, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. And that's part of God's will for our lives, that we would forgive as we've been forgiven. That both capital, you know, we, we, we forgive as a sign of our forgiveness, and then day by day by day, just as there's lowercase r's, there's lowercase forgiveness of where we forgive this person, we forgive this person, we forgive this person, we forgive this person, because we've been forgiven. That's part of God's will for our lives. That needs to be the attitude of our heart. We forgive because we've been forgiven. And so pray for your daily needs. Pray for your daily forgiveness and your daily forgiveness of others that you would daily forgive. And then finally, let us see. Pray for our guidance and protection. Pray for our and your guidance and protection. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so the prayer really here is just, Lord, help! Help us! Help me. Guide us away from situations where the evil one would take advantage of that to, you know, he'd seize an opportunity for temptation and then also not just guide us, but protect us whenever that temptation inevitably comes. And so again, we see this place here where we're both to pray and to work, right? We pray for God's help in this way. We pray for deliverance from temptation, yet Scripture also commands us to flee it. We ask God to lead us away from temptation, yet we must also avoid it. We're to make no provisions for the lust of the flesh. And so we should structure our lives in such a way to make it harder for us to sin in the ways that we may be 
or have a proclivity towards. That's why, like, every single person in this room should have, like, lockdowns on your phone. Protections built into your phone so you can't access certain apps, certain websites. And certainly, if you're a parent, you should have those on your kids' phones. Do not hand them a loaded weapon. I mean, we know this. Like, you think about it, you think, I mean, practical things that we can do to help combat sin. Like, you know, if your kids, when they're particularly smaller, but really, I don't think it changes with age. When they get lack of sleep, they get irritable. They get grumpy, right? You know who else does? And everybody in here. And so one of the practical things we can, like, I will be grumpy tonight because today is the day where I'm always tired. Tonight I'm always tired. So I know i got to fight that, right? I know i got to fight that. I usually fail and I have to, all this praying to ask God to forgive for the same thing I asked you to forgive me for, that's one of them. But i got to fight that. But you know one of the most simple things you can do to help yourself with that? Sleep. Go to bed. A practical thing that helps you fight sin. And there's scores of examples of like this in your own life. And so, yes, you need to pray and ask God to, to, to guide you from situations and protect you in those situations when they come. But where you can take practical steps, take the practical steps. And so do these things. Pray. Ask your Father. Again, who loves you? He's not a dictator in the sky. He's not a tyrant call, barking out orders. He is not a drill sergeant. He is a loving father, and he invites you. Prayer is an invitation. He invites you, come commune with me, talk with me. I'm here, son, daughter, I'm here. And so that's why Jesus tells us to start vertically, to get our eyes on our father and off of our situations. We need to pray for them, but first remember you're talking to your dad. And he's perfect, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, always eager to listen and to help. And so pray. And when you pray, pray like this. Start vertical. And then, yeah, continue personal. That's simple, easy way to remember to pray. Start vertical, continue personal. It's a divine outline, and we call it the Lord's Prayer. And so now let's all pray. Father, praise your name that we can call you that. Now we, you don't make us come to you with huge titles, though you deserve that, but you allow us to call you Father. And you love us that way. And we pray that your name would be hallowed in all the earth, in every corner of the universe, every square inch. We long for the day when that happens, when, when everyone bows and every tongue confesses 
We long for the day that your kingdom comes. And until then, help us to be busy about giving a foretaste of it, even in small things. You see the small things. Help us to live out your will in the small things and in the big things. And help us to not confuse our will with your will, our ways with your ways. And help us not to try to twist and self-justify our will and pretend that it's your will. Your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. And Father, do give us our daily needs. Father, do give others their daily bread and help us to be part of the solution there. But give us our daily needs. We all have them this morning. I don't know what they are for everyone. I know for some, for many, what certain things are in their lives. But I... You do. You know every aspect, every nook and cranny of their heart. I would pray that you would meet our daily needs and that you would forgive us of our sin. And that we, you would help us forgive others. And guard us and protect us from temptation and evil. And help us to, Lord, again, just pursue your ways. Not obligatory, but knowing you are our Father. And you love us. Lord, I I just pray, remake all of our minds to really, truly see you as Father. Rid our minds of Zeus in the sky, ready to zap us with lightning bolts. Perfect Father, patient and loving and kind. And let that revolutionize our prayer life and our day in and day out life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.